Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. The battle for the fortress is eerily quiet. There are 40 men and women inside the castle of Chalou Chabrol in Aquitaine. Hundreds of attackers swarm outside. They're fighting hell for leather. But their weapons of choice aren't catapults or battering rams. What you hear on this day, just before Easter in 1199, is the creak and strain of hard yew wood bent taut. The thwack and twang of strong twine snapping forward. Grunts of effort as men load and reload. The thud of small metal-tipped bolts slamming into shields. The two sides are fighting with crossbows. These weapons are light, portable, accurate, and easy for anyone to pick up, point and shoot. They're the Colt Peacemakers, or AK-47s, of the late 12th century. Unlike those modern weapons, crossbows don't make a bang when they go off. But if a crossbow bolt catches you in the wrong place, you're in big trouble. What's happening around Chalou Chabrol in late March 1199 is a fight no louder than a game of laser tag. But the stakes are life and death. In this deadly game, the attackers are led by Richard the Lionheart, King of England and Lord of the Plantagenet Empire. For nearly five years, Richard has been fighting to win back his lands. Lands his arch-rival, Philip Augustus, the King of France, stole while he was stuck in jail. Since his release, Richard has been blasting through enemy castles and troops like their twigs. He's been doing so well, in fact, that Philip Augustus has asked him for a truce. As we heard last time, Richard agreed to the amnesty, but still, the Lionheart's world is large and full of enemies. He's in Chalou Chabrol fighting an ally of Philip's who isn't protected by the terms of the peace. That's the Count of Limoges, a long-time thorn in the Plantagenet's side. Richard wants to kick the Count's legs out from under him, then maybe kick his head in while he's on the ground. In military terms, that means taking the Count's castles, starting with Chalou Chabrol. I said Richard was leading the attackers outside the castle, and I meant that literally. Obviously, he's masterminded the tactics. His soldiers use their crossbows to keep the defenders pinned down, hiding behind the battlements, scared to pop their heads up. That lets Richard send miners, or sappers, near the walls, digging tunnels that will weaken the castle's structure. But there's more to it than that. 
leadership for Richard doesn't mean sitting in a tent half a mile away from the action, telling other people what to do. He's Richard the Lionheart, not Richard the Pussycat. So as often as possible, Richard gets out there among his men, crossbow in one hand and a wooden shield in the other, sniping at the battlements. He loves showing his fellow warriors how it's done, keeping morale high and, frankly, having fun. As evening draws in on March the 26th, Richard finishes his dinner, sends for his crossbow and goes out to join the fray. He doesn't waste time sticking armour on. Who can be bothered, especially after a good meal? He just pops a helmet on his head, grabs a shield and leaves it at that. Things at the castle are looking promising. The sappers have dug so many tunnels underneath it, it's like the New York subway. It won't be long now before they're ready to collapse the walls and turn them entirely to rubble. Even better, there's a single defender up on the battlements, daring Richard to take his best shot. Richard loves a challenge, and he admires anyone who's up for a scrap. This defender has a crossbow of his own. Bizarrely, he also has a frying pan, which he's using as a shield. Fair play, thinks Richard, so even though this guy's lining him up with his crossbow, the Lionheart raises his hands and gives him a round of applause. Richard hunkers down behind his shield as the guy shoots. But whether it's the fading light, a post-meal blood sugar slump, the first sign of age creeping into his muscles, or just dumb bad luck, Richard doesn't hunker fast enough. The crossbow bolt whistles through the air and slices into his left shoulder. Its iron head buries itself deep into his flesh. The guy with the frying pan can hardly believe it. Richard the Lionheart, King of England, doesn't even make a sound. I'm Dan Jones. And from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 12, Richard Interrupted. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. 
Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. The Sultan Saladin once said of Richard that his life was a story of courage carried to excess. Saladin died in 1193, while Richard was still in jail. So he was drawing on much more limited experience of the man than, say, Philip Augustus or even the Count of Limoges. But Saladin was no dummy. What's more, though he never met Richard in person, he was his main sparring partner on the Third Crusade. He understood exactly who Richard was. And for what it's worth, I think he got the English king bang on. Now clearly there's some pretty heavy implied criticism in Saladin's words. Courage carried to excess sounds like he was too brave for his own good. When we look at Richard's career overall, he's an astonishingly competent military leader. A king who inspires fight-to-the-death loyalty even when he's not around. The cock of the walk in an age where that's a serious political asset. His willingness to run towards trouble when everyone else is running in the opposite direction is central to his reputation. A reputation which can scare his enemies to death, literally, from hundreds of miles away. Yet if we consider all the worst scrapes Richard gets into, many of them are connected to what we might call his appetite for destruction. As a young man, his fight-first-and-ask-questions-later instincts are what leads him into wars with his father and two of his brothers. On crusade, his aggression, often perceived as arrogance, upsets his allies as much as it intimidates his enemies. Just ask Leopold of Austria. And in 1199, Richard's insistence on putting himself in the thick of action he really doesn't need to be in gets him shot by a guy who looks like he belongs on MasterChef, not the battlefield. I suppose it's fair to ask whether Richard would have considered this courage carried to excess. My guess is he wouldn't. He would have reasoned that in his 41 and a half years on Earth, he's shown again and again that he can handle himself, come what may. Remember him going toe-to-toe with William Marshall in single combat on horseback during the dying days of old King Henry's reign? You have to be pretty sure of yourself to saddle up and point your lance in anger at the self-proclaimed world's most awesome knight. Or how about on Cyprus during the Crusade, where Richard storms the beaches with his men as they hunt down the tyrant Isaac Ducas Komnenos. Then there's his finest hour, defending Jaffa, where once again he's fighting on the beaches, but this time against terrible odds, with the real risk that he could be killed and the Third Crusade thrown into terminal disarray. I've done all that, Richard might say, and you expect me to be scared of Gordon Ramsay up there with his non-stick skillet? But that's the story of great fighters throughout history. They're invincible until they're not. And it's Richard's story too. Courage carried to excess. On the 26th of March, 1199, he rolls the dice one time too many, and he craps out. But not straight away. 
which brings us back to Chalou Chabrol. When the crossbow bolt slams into Richard's shoulder, he doesn't say a word. Not because he's dead. A clean shot in the shoulder hurts like hell, but it's not lethal. At least, not straight away. No, Richard keeps quiet because he's double hard and he doesn't want to let on to anyone that he's injured. Or, as one chronicler puts it, he showed no sadness in his face or gesture so that he would not make his friends timid or give the enemies greater boldness. Richard acts like nothing's happened. He doesn't panic. He just makes like he's had enough fun for one day and wants to go and sleep. Then he heads for his headquarters, a house that his troops have taken over not far from the castle. When he gets there, he lets on to a few trusted attendants what's happened. Then he tries to see what the damage is like. It's not great. And it gets worse when Richard starts tugging at the crossbow bolt. He manages to get the wooden shaft out of his shoulder, but the iron tip stays in. On one level, that's no surprise. Arrow and bolt heads are attached loosely to their wooden shafts on purpose, precisely so they'll get stuck inside whoever they hit. All the same, this is still very bad news, because now Richard needs a surgeon, which means his future just got a lot more painful. Medieval operations aren't pure barbarity, but they're not exactly keyhole surgery either. And when the surgeon, a guy called Marcady, arrives, things get, well, medieval. The sawbones slices open Richard's shoulder and starts digging around. But the light has gone outside and the lamps in the house are dingy. Also, according to one chronicler, Richard has piled on a few pounds during the last few years. War was stressful, I guess. Tell me you wouldn't be having a few extra Oreos with your morning coffee if you were in Richard's shoes. Still, what it means is that there's a whole lot of shoulder to dig around in. So it takes Marcady a while to get the metal out. And by the time he does, the wound is looking horrible. They patch it up with ointments and bandages. From what we know of Richard, we can assume he's a big, brave boy about it. But everyone recognises that the next few days are going to be hairy. If Richard pulls through, the castle will fall, the war will go on, a new crusade might soon be looming, and the Lionheart's flame is going to burn brighter than ever. If he doesn't, the future of the entire Plantagenet Empire will be up for grabs. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now.
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the days that follow Richard's surgery, he tries to keep his spirits up. The doctors have advised him to rest up, go easy, let the body heal. But rest up and go easy aren't really words in the Lionheart's vocabulary. So Richard decides that the best medicine is, well, how can I put this? Having an orgy. One chronicler says he behaves without self-control. Another says he prefers the joys of Venus to serious medical advice. And a third says that the doctors tell him the one thing he mustn't do if he wants to get better is to have sex with a load of people who aren't his wife. The wife bit isn't a problem. There's no evidence he's seen much, if anything, of Queen Berengaria for the last four years. But remember, courage carried to excess comes in many forms. Richard is keeping a low profile so that as few people as possible will know he's injured. But he's got to do something. So he spends the next couple of days with his shoulder wrapped and his pants around his ankles. After a few days, the docs come back to see how he's doing. Guess what? They knew what they were talking about. Things are looking bad. In fact, they're looking gangrenous. Was the crossbow bolt poisoned? Was the surgery not sterile? Was God just super moody about Richard's rampant fornication? Different chroniclers give different explanations, but the fact is that Richard's shoulder is rotting from the inside. Though Richard tries to joke about it, he's been around the block enough times to know what this means. It's a death sentence. He has days, at best. Realising belatedly that he'd better sort out his affairs, Richard writes to his most trusted adviser with an order to come and see him as soon as possible. The message goes off post-haste. The adviser is 100 miles away, but as soon as the order arrives, they set out on a series of forced marches to get to Chalou Chabrol. It's Eleanor of Aquitaine, and she arrives to see her favourite son before he dies. She's in her 70s now. The king she calls her mighty man is the seventh of her children to go before her. We have no idea how Eleanor feels, but we know the occasion leaves enough of a mark on her that she records it in her next official charter, stating that she's been at our son the king's deathbed. We also know that Richard dies with a combination of brave nonchalance and some of the same high drama that his brother, Henry the Young King, once went through. He confesses his sins. He actually formally forgives the man who shot him. 
One chronicler says he has himself hung upside down by his feet and whipped for his life's misdeeds. Then he's anointed with holy oil. And finally, on the evening of April the 6th, 1199, with his mother and his confessor, a man named Milo, by his side, Richard the Lionheart dies. Milo closes his mouth and his eyes. Then messengers fan out across France and England to announce the shocking news. The king is dead. Eleanor accompanies his body to Fontevraud Abbey, where he's buried alongside his father, Old Henry. Richard's enemies, among Philip's followers, immediately start gloating. They spread rumours that Richard was only in Chalouchabrol to chase a rumour that there was buried treasure there, and that the greedy fool got what he deserved. One chronicler doesn't believe the treasure rumour, but notes dryly that no king in history had taken as much money from his people as Richard. Of course, it's easy to be critical once the Lionheart isn't alive to hear you. Richard's supporters are much more generous. One famous passage, quoted for hundreds of years afterwards, laments the suddenness of his death. To our eyes he was light, to our ears melody, to our minds an amazement. He was the lord of warriors, the glory of kings, the delight of the world. William Marshall is just as fulsome. To him, Richard was a man worthy and courtly, bounteous and generous, a man of high enterprise, a conqueror whom, had he lived, would have won for himself all the renown in this world. Yet Richard did not live. Courage carried to excess sees him off, just shy of his 42nd birthday, not quite ten years into his reign. He leaves behind him a Plantagenet empire that's much more complete than it had been in 1194 when he got out of jail. He leaves most of his enemies either dead or bludgeoned into submission. He leaves a controversial legacy and a legend that endures to this day. Richard, a brutal king for a brutal age, superhero and supervillain rolled into one. He also leaves behind a final choice of successor. It's not a child of his own, since he and Berengaria barely saw one another throughout their marriage. Nor is it his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, now twelve years old, whom Richard named as his heir on Sicily during the Third Crusade. But it's a child all the same. A 32-year-old child, called John. Now I know what you're thinking. If you take this series as his CV, John seems almost uniquely badly qualified to be the leader of a realm. Slippery, false and sly, John's far from everyone's first pick to be the new Plantagenet king. But he's Eleanor's last son. So he's her preferred choice, and William Marshall's. For very different reasons, he's also Philip Augustus's. 
If the French king had a say, he'd choose John every day of the week. The balance of power in Europe is about to be stood on its head. The smartest of Richard's old advisers, his Archbishop of Canterbury, Hubert Walter, hears of the old king's death from Marshall. Once he's over the shock, Marshall tells Walter he's supporting John as Richard's successor. The canny archbishop shakes his head. You will never come to regret anything as much as what you're doing right now, he says. Is he right? We'll find out on the next and final season of our Plantagenet saga. With John on the throne, things are about to reach levels of chaos England hasn't seen in generations. William Marshall, Eleanor of Aquitaine and the rest of the Plantagenet Empire are facing civil war, secret plots, drunken murders and vengeance from heaven. The stage is set for a finale of epic proportions. See you soon on This Is History. This Is History is a Sony Music Entertainment production. It's written and hosted by me, Dan Jones. The producer is Clem Hitchcock. The series producer and story editor is Georgia Mills. Dave Anderson is the executive producer. With additional production from Ellie Lazaridis. The production manager is Jen Mystery. Matt Atchison composed the original music, with mixing and sound design from Chris O'Shaughnessy. The studio engineers are Jay Beale, Gulliver Tickle and Josh Gibbs. Now watch this space because we'll be back to bring you the closing chapter of our Plantagenet story, once I've written it. In the meantime, you can always join This Is History Plus to unlock a whole bunch of extra episodes where we've been getting stuck into all the gory details we didn't have time for in the main episodes. You'll also get all episodes completely ad-free. And while you wait for the next season, we'll be back with some more exclusive episodes for This Is History Plus subscribers, so you can keep getting your history fix. I'll be joined by some brilliant historians to do some more digging into the legendary characters from our story and life in the Middle Ages. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. And please do give us a rating or a review. I love hearing from you. Okay. That's it from me. Thanks very much for listening. See you soon.